Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. This is the podcast for Multi Faith Matters, and I am the host, John Morehead, and I am privileged today. To have as my guest, Robert Scavarla. Am I pronouncing that correctly, Robert? You are, yes. It's Scavarla. Fantastic. Uh, Robert is a freelance writer from Philadelphia. Uh, His work, uh, his focuses, or foci, I don't know what the best (laughs) grammatical way that is, include conspiracy culture, fringe communities, and new religious movements. Uh, He has written for Diabolique magazine, one that I've written for as well, Atlas Obscura, and Philly Voice. And... uh, Robert, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on, John. I'm very excited to discuss what we're talking about today. Um, Jeremiah Films is an interesting subject, and it's one that very few people are aware of, but it has been highly influential, so I'm excited. Yeah, folks uh, who uh, listen or watch the Multi-Faith Matters podcast uh, are likely familiar with my work in religious diplomacy, religion, and pop culture, but there's another facet of the work. Uh, which is how I tapped into what uh, Robert is doing, and that is looking at uh, genre, uh, horror, science fiction, and fantasy, and how religion and culture uh, is shaped and found in those particular genres. And I, was, uh, I recently came across an article that Robert wrote in Diabolique magazine um, that dealt with Jeremiah films and satanic uh, panics and conspiracies, and he connected mm-hmm. some fascinating dots. And so there's this overlap here. And uh, I'm just privileged that uh, you have come on the program. I think folks are going to find this uh, an interesting conversation. Again, we're going to be talking about Jeremiah Films. And um, uh, we're going to get Robert to tell us a little bit about it. But they have been a very influential film production company in the conservative uh, Christian community, evangelical and fundamentalist, and probably other circles as well. And uh, in the interest of full disclosure, many, many years ago, I too was influenced by Jeremiah Films, particularly the Godmakers films. And then I came uh, to have a change of heart and mind and that I saw that this kind of uh, expose kind of approach really didn't do justice to the subject matter. And I'm in a very different place today, but Robert's going to help us uh, unpack some of this. Um, you cover some interesting materials in your writing. I'd like to get a little bit of background about you and why you cover the subject matter that you do. You write on the, the fringe of pop culture. And I'm not quite certain whether the fringe is so much fringe anymore, but... but <laughs> How did you come to develop an interest in, in these areas and writing on um, I've kind of grown up around it as a kid. Uh, I, I'm 36, so I was just old enough to experience The X-Files. Okay. When it was first taking off, I was a huge fan of the TV show Sightings, which was a paranormal news show. So I was always into these things growing up, and I was raised Catholic. And even though I would still go to uh, Sunday school, I went to a slightly more conservative one where they would show us um, films like Jeremiah films. I don't know if I recall watching films like that, but I definitely remember seeing a Bob Larson um, tape at some point growing up in Sunday school. So I was around a lot of this stuff from a young age. And as I got older, um, I went back to college in my late 20s 
and got into uh, studying public relations, but realized that really wasn't what my interest was. So uh, when I ended up in grad school, I was in a communications program where I put a lot of my focus into studying like political communication and fringe forms of political communication, of which I would include Jeremiah Films and um, right-wing Christian movements. So I wrote a little bit about that as part of my program and developed that outside of that. So the first true article I wrote on any subject like this was in 2017 for Atlas Obscura, which was an article on Procter and Gamble and their connection to a conspiracy theory in the 80s, um, stating that they had supported the Church of Satan, which was started by a, an evangelical um, Christian organization in St. Paul, Minnesota. They had initially um, accused um, Procter and Gamble of working with the Unification Church. When that got debunked, they sort of shifted into using a conspiracy theory that had already targeted McDonald's in the late 70s, accusing Ray Kroc of supporting the Church of Satan. Um, so somehow they ported that over to um, Procter and Gamble and that stuck with Procter and Gamble for probably 20, 25 years until a lawsuit in the 2000s. So that's sort of what kicked it off. And then I just kept trying to find any subject matter I could that would connect to it. So similar to the Jeremiah article um, for Diabolique in 2018, I wrote one about some classic pictures, which was primarily a Mormon um, production company in um, Sun, uh, Park City, Utah. And they produced documentaries um, about paranormal subjects, um, the mysterious monsters, um, trying to think of some of the other ones, but it was a lot of like Bigfoot, UFO, um, near, near death experiences and things like that. That was well received. So I just kept at it. And in the back of my mind, because of that Sun article, I knew of Jeremiah Films previously. So I started researching them because there's some overlap between the two. And if, do you want me to? Yeah, if you, you want, want me to take that, that back. Yeah, if you want to just, yeah, hit that ending part again, I'll just, well, I do some editing for these things, so. Okay, um, so as I was working on the article about some classic pictures, um, Jeremiah films overlapped in some spaces because I was looking at what are known as pseudo documentaries, which are films, movies, um, productions that mimic the format of a documentary, but are often highly exploitative or um, about subject matter that cannot be supported by direct evidence. So within the film tradition, there were examples like the Mondo film, which usually um, showcased foreign cultures, often Africa for Western audiences. The pseudo documentaries that I was looking at were often UFOs, um, Christian organizations covering things like near-death experiences or encounters with religious phenomena, Bigfoot, um, just all kinds of unusual subject matter. Um, and so eventually I decided to develop the article about Jeremiah Films. I initially published it on my personal blog, someone at Diabolique expressed interest in it. So I turned it into a recurring column that I do for them called Conspiracy USA, which looks at um, how conspiracy theory, conspiracy theories have manifested in uh, Western films or how how films are the result of actual conspiracies in some cases, which ties into my views on Jeremiah Films and the conservative Christian movement that it was a part of in the beginning in the 70s up through today. Well, you and I certainly have some overlapping interests, um, even though I'm doing a podcast for conservative evangelicals. Um, for right. years, I've been 
I went to Burning Man, did my master's thesis <laughs> on it as an alternative subculture. Um, I co-edited an academic volume for Rutledge on a paranormal, uh, you know, the paranormal in pop culture. And what does that tell us about the current quest for meaning? Um, so you and I have a lot of, of common interests there. So I appreciate the work that you're doing. Are you fortunate enough to be able to, to do this full time or is this a side passion for you? Uh, no. So when I said I went to grad school, it was still within my professional field. It was a communications program geared towards. Um, so w- when I studied public relations as an undergrad, I focused on nonprofit communication and fundraising with the hope of getting into grant writing or something similar. I briefly worked for an animal rights group and was working for them while I was going to grad school full time. But um, the program I was in was geared towards professional students, even though it had a mixture of communication theory and practical applications. So a lot of the stuff that I focused on when we were doing theory courses or political communication courses, um, I looked at conspiracy theories or fringe communities. Um, It ultimately wasn't useful for me in the end. So um, I don't get paid to do it. It's something I do because I'm just obsessed with it in some ways. Well, it's again, it sounds like what I do, this is a passion <laughs> to figure out how to make it, you know, pay for itself. And I think yeah. what we're interested in is it's very important, very influential, as we will see over the course of the conversation. But unfortunately, what our society is willing to pay for, uh, you know, and what have value aren't necessarily line up all the time. Now, let's talk about uh, Jeremiah Films. For those who haven't uh, heard of it before, can you tell, give us a thumbnail sketch about Jeremiah Films so the folks can know the background about this company? Sure, I'll kind of back up a little bit to before Jeremiah Films because the most important figure with Jeremiah Films is a man named Pat or Patrick Matriciana, who was an evangelical activist from the late 60s. He started um, as a member of the Campus Crusade for Christ as I believe a regional director um, out in California. And then he became involved in founding a group known as the Christian World Liberation Front, which was... um, I don't know how to phrase this better other than calling it a front group. That's kind of what it was. Um, They were trying to, the the church was trying to figure out how to respond to the social changes of the 1960s. So the Christian World Liberation Front um, was created using the language of the new left. Um, Literally the name is almost similar to the Symbionese Liberation Front and other similar organizations in that era. And they created it to try and recruit hippies and college students in Berkeley, California. Um, he didn't lead the organization. He left it shortly after helping to found it, but then he moved on to other forms of activism. He worked with an organization, California Christians Active Politically, where he was actually running it. Um, and on the board of the directors were influential figures like Tim LaHaye, who would go on to help co-found the Council for National Policy. And um, Hal Lindsey was also another figure connected to it. So Matriciano was heavily involved in activism with evangelical community and the Christian community um, for a decade and a half at least before he founded Jeremiah in 1980. But at some point he decided he needed to produce films for Christians. So he founded Jeremiah with the explicit purpose of um, reaching out to try and convert people. So their first well-known film was known as The Godmakers, Mm -hmm. which was essentially an attack on the Mormon church It uses a lot of um, techniques and arguments that cast uh, Mormonism in a negative light. And you can have obvious disagreements between different faiths, uh, that's fine. 
but one of the tactics that he used was connecting it to Satanism. So um, it began his obsession and Jeremiah Film's obsession with the occult, looking at things like the Mormon church's use of the pentagram, which is actually a figure, an icon that stems back to early Christian um, imagery. Um, it initially represented the five wounds of Christ, and then over time it changed. Um, I believe in the 16th century, it first gained its negative connotation due to a French occultist named Eliphas Levi. And around the same time, uh, sorry, 18th century, I believe, around the time Levi was developing this, um, the Mormon church was also using the same imagery. So they didn't necessarily have a direct connection to the occult. It's just that the occult image of the pentagram was developing at the same time the Mormon church was using it. So a lot of the techniques and arguments used in the film, uh, I, would, I would say are less than, there isn't a lot of evidence to support what they're claiming and it often comes across in bad faith. And that's something that recurs over time in the various other films that they would make. The next film that followed that with was The Godmakers, uh, sorry, uh, Gods of the New Age, mm -hmm. which was essentially a continuation because instead of focusing on the Mormon church, they chose to look at New Age, uh, New Age religious movements. Um, they focused heavily on the Rajneesh movement in Oregon, which deserves legitimate criticism. Um, that movement was responsible for poisoning, I think like 40 to 50 people in uh, the Dallas, Oregon region um, because of disputes between um, the community there, Rajneesh Puram, and the locals who were less than welcoming to this new group. And it eventually evolved into a bioterror attack. So there were legitimate crit criticisms of the Rajneesh movement, but gods of the new age um, developed that even further, um, specifically connecting Hinduism to Nazism through imagery that they share, like the swastika, which was a symbol predating the um, National Socialist Movement in mm -hmm. Germany um, during World War II and dates back um, quite a while in the Hindu faith. Right. So again, it was a bad faith attack. So that's something that keeps recurring and something I wanted to explore as I looked at how Jeremiah Films evolved from an organization focused on making and converting religious people to um, almost a purely political organization by the 90s, or at least Matriciana himself had become a purely political figure by that point. I'd like to unpack just a little bit more some of the methodology that they use. Before the program started, I, I mentioned to you that uh, I was familiar with the Godmakers film um, and maybe a handful of others. I, I knew one of the folks featured in it but then when I stepped back from it years later and looked at the methodology and the way they were framing uh, those that they disagree with, I took serious exception mm -hmm. to it. That's why we're having this conversation today uh, because I pursue a different way of trying to understand other religious traditions and relate to them. Um, but uh, one of the things that, that they do is uh, evangelicals and fundamentalist Christians love a testimony. They love a story of somebody who came out of a group. They do. And now I'm a Christian, right? So. Uh, we love former Mormons and former Satanists and witches and all this kind of stuff. And, and many of those stories that are out there um, are they're, they're really incredible in the sense that there's that they tell stories which don't line up with uh, what was allegedly their former background. What kinds of methodologies uh, and elements became a formula for Jeremiah Films and drawing upon these ex-members and other elements that resulted in these pseudo-documentaries? 
Yeah, so uh, the testimony is important in all of these documentaries and just in the pseudo documentary in general. Um, I'm not someone who believes a documentary has to present an objective reality. All filmmakers go in with a purpose. Art doesn't necessarily have to cohere to an objective vision of the world. But the way these documentaries in specific handle it um, can be troubling in a number of ways. So they use expert testimony from people who are non-credentialed, but also people who, it's hard to back up what they're stating. So in the Godmakers and Gods of the New Age, one of the figures that pops up is a man named Bill Schnobellen, mm -hmm. who um, would I believe go on to become a pastor himself. But in God's, uh, the Godmakers, he's presented as both an ex-Mormon and an ex-Satanist. And he draws a direct connection between the two, stating that he converted from Satanism to Mormonism because he saw similarities between them one of which being the iconography of the pentagram. He comes back in Gods of the New Age, upgraded from you know, ex-Satanist, ex-Mormon to occult expert. So they create their own figures of authority to essentially what I would say engineer the points that they're trying to make. And then they would in later documentaries, their Satanic Panic era documentaries, um, interview a lot of ex-Satanists who would make claims that are impossible to corroborate specifically related to the phenomenon of satanic ritual abuse. Yeah, in preparing for our conversation here, uh, I went and looked up uh, Bill again. I hadn't looked at him. I gave a, an interview years ago to a vampire website where I offered some critique of uh, what he was doing. And in the recent research, I mean, it's I don't understand why people find this kind of thing credible. He talks about supposedly reaching a fork in the road in his... Uh, I don't know if he was framing it as pagan or satanic studies, but he could either become a vampire or a werewolf. And he views these as, as real creatures. And uh, he decided it would be easier to take the vampire route than rather than becoming a werewolf because it would be less painful. He didn't want to have to go through the transition. And he's saying this with a straight face. Um, so, I mean, there, there are many, again, incredible and fantastic, and I think just unbelievable elements that are in, incorporated by these, these so-called experts. Uh, did, you, did you encounter much of this when you were doing your research for, you know, some of the writing you do? Well, yeah. So one of the habits that they would, uh, that Jeremiah Films would develop is they would create their own experts. So for Gods of the New Age, uh, there is a tie-in book written by um, Pat Matriciana's former wife, Carol Matriciana. She wrote the book and then was presented as essentially the expert on New Age religious movements. Part of the book um, relates her experience going to India to observe Hinduism firsthand. Um, so over time, um, Jeremiah films, because in that era, it probably would have been difficult to find people willing to speak on the subjects in the way that they wanted them to, they would have to create figures of authority, which is something that they would do through personal testimony, which um, is something that they would do by finding um, alleged ex-victims of these abuses, especially for the satanic panic era stuff. Um, and a lot of that, you know, we still see to this day. One of the arguments that um, I make in my article and that I'm trying to develop um, around the satanic panic is that it's often viewed as purely a religious hysteria from the 80s and 90s. But it's actually something that predates that and something that continued after the 90s, because um, at least to my mind, it's at least partially a long-term political project undertaken by um, a small group of conservative Christians. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's representative of Christianity as a whole, but it reflects the specific political purposes of a group of people beginning at least in the 1970s 
and then working its way forward up until, you know, very recently where we've seen um, that play out in a number of different ways. Well, your article uh, in Diabolique um, is looking at how satanic views uh, are connected to conspiracy theories and how Jeremiah Films does that. Can you talk about some of the films that they do this? What kind of portrait they're painting of Satanism? And are they drawing upon academic literature and trying to say, go from scholarly analysis to here's the challenge we face? Or what's the dynamic going on there? Uh, yeah, so they're not really drawing on academic research in the sense that uh, it's coming from non-Christian institutions. One of the arguments that I am trying to develop is the Satanic Panic was at least partially um, a project by um, institutions like Liberty University and Jerry Falwell and the National Council, uh, National, uh, yeah, the National uh, the Policy, the Council for National Policy, sorry, I messed up the name there but organizations like this to find a way to remove at least their congregants from secular life so that they could exert a greater control over their finances. Um, this plays out in a number of different ways um, in things like the war on Christmas that we see today, but predating that was a war on Halloween um, that Jerry Falwell specifically was responsible for undertaking. And Falwell is a figure who connects to Matriciana himself later on um, in the 90s. So uh, one of the arguments that I'm trying to make here is that the satanic panic wasn't purely like a religious or cultural thing that happened. It was a long-term political project. So to accomplish that, they would have to create their own research. Again, creating experts, creating or finding alleged victims so that they could corroborate these stories. And in the film specifically, uh, the first one that they created was um, Devil Worship, The Rise of Satanism in 1989. And then they would go on to create the notorious um, Halloween Trick or Treat, which has become kind of like a meme today. You see it online a lot on social media. People will share it. Right. They'll share portions of it, edit it out of context, uh, because in some ways it is kind of funny um, stuff that they put in there. But um, that was part of a series then, The Pagan Invasion which uh, was a 13 part series where they either create a new material or often just regurgitated old material. They would re-edit stuff from the Godmakers, from Gods of the New Age, um, and um, Devil Worship, The Rise of Satanism and repackage it. So they really went heavy on this by the late eighties and started finding um, their own experts creating them and finding lots of victims or supposed victims to corroborate these stories and they would build it, the documentaries around these people. In some cases, they would also interview um, alleged pagans um, or practicing witches, but it's hard to actually verify if the people that they interviewed were practicing parts of those faiths. Now, one of the things I found fascinating about your piece, I've, I've read a lot by scholars and popular articles on the satanic panics. And for folks who don't know, in the 80s and into the 90s, there was this social panic uh, where allegations were made about alleged underground networks of Satanists who were mm -hmm. engaging in satanic ritual abuse and these kinds of things. And of course, the threat was to the children. And it surfaced most recently in, in some of the, what we saw in QAnon conspiracy. Correct. Um, so we, we have this going on and it's usually been focused on the religious realm, um, but mm -hmm. you're connecting the dots and saying, you know, the satanic panics really didn't disappear 
uh, in the 1990s, they just kind of changed their, their, morphed in their form, at least in terms of how Jeremiah Films is doing things. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I think it's a great argument. I think you're spot on there. Right. So um, a lot of what I write about um, can also be considered conspiracy research, um, which means I operate in a space where a lot of people are writing about conspiracies and conspiracy theories as if they're real. And in some cases, conspiracies do exist. Um, you know, if you look, for example, at um, the various financial scandals we've had since 2008, there's been close to 20 different banking scandals. Um, you could argue that those are conspiracies. So I'm operating in this area, at least part of the time where I am looking to see if some of these, if there's a valid argument to be made for this. In the course of doing that, I ended up looking at um, the satanic panic from that perspective to see, well, maybe there is a conspiracy, but maybe it's not the one that we think of. Because when you first think about it, um, the one that's obviously presented is, as you mentioned, the network of Satanists operating at high levels or low levels in daycares to um, abduct and ritually abuse children. Uh, so when you look at it from that perspective, obviously not taking that at face value, but thinking that maybe there's something more there, um, I began seeing individual instances where you can find uh, like moments of rupture, where you can find like moments of clarity to see that there might be something more than just purely a religious hysteria. So I mentioned earlier the um, allegations against Procter and Gamble. That initially started as one against McDonald's in the late 70s. It moved on to Procter and Gamble, and then it would come back again to hit Liz Claiborne, Liz Claiborne in the 90s. One of the things that you see is that the community, the evangelical community that picked up on that, it was at a time when the United States and other Western countries were moving towards globalization. Uh, multinational corporations were slowly replacing small businesses and even rich regional businesses. So one of the ways that these organizations, these religious groups would try and maintain community or fight back is expressing maybe these economic fears in other ways. Um, the Procter and Gamble one is interesting specifically because after that church group created the theory, it got picked up on by Amway representatives. And Amway is door-to-door -door sales business. Some people accuse it of being a multi-level marketing scheme. You can make your own opinions based on your own research. Um, but it's often or was initially very popular among Christian communities. So the primary people making the claims against Procter & Gamble were found to be Amway representatives. And this was something that was known very high level at Amway. So in the 2000s, there was a lawsuit um, by Procter & Gamble focusing on this and they eventually won damages. So one of the ways that you can look at satanic panic is as this manifestation of economic anxiety among religious communities to changes that are happening around them. And that's one that's purely financial. But if you look at Jeremiah films, it's also extending into cultural and social issues. So after uh, Matriciana made the devil worship documentary in the early 90s, he began creating what were essentially a series of front organizations, nonprofits with legitimate sounding names to create documentaries first attacking the gay rights movement. Um, he released two um, gay rights, special rights and AIDS, what you haven't been told, um, using similar tactics that he developed during the satanic panic to um, attack people in queer communities. And at this point, he started moving from the religious accusations of like satanic ritual abuse 
claiming that Satanists had infiltrated high levels of government to claiming that activists, like actual political activists, specifically the queer community, had infiltrated the government to enact um, a so-called gay agenda. He would then finally deliver fully on the political aspects of this in 94 with a documentary known as the Clinton Chronicles, where he accused Bill Clinton of a number of things, drug trafficking at the MENA International Airport in Arkansas, um, Whitewater, writing that, which was still in the news, uh, but also orchestrating the murder of the White House special counsel, Vince Foster, connected to Whitewater. So there are different ways of looking at the satanic panic, and you can see the various players operating in different ways. I think a lot of it is often financially motivated, but you can find those social and political connections as well. And at various points, they do dovetail. Now, you mentioned uh, with Procter & Gamble that it, it was related to some economic changes and, and fears. Obviously, yes. fears feel a lot about what a, a social group is afraid of. As you've looked at uh, Jeremiah Films and its audience, um, what kinds of things do you think uh, conservative Christians are afraid of in America? Well, so that one specifically, so what, when we saw the change, the move to globaliz towards globalization in the late 70s and early 80s, the financialization of America, um, one of the things that you see is one of the most vocal critics of it was actually the evangelical community because they were never, it's not um, prosperity theology. It's not, you know, God only gives to the rich. Um, a good deal of Christian rhetoric is helping those less fortunate as opposed to other forms uh, other theological perspectives, which argue like um, prosperity theology, that God only rewards the rich. So I think that even amongst some members of the Jeremiah Films community, there may have been that anxiety over the changing nature of America. I don't necessarily see specific economic arguments in the films themselves, but the community that would have been affected by this, um, people who are connected to conspiracy theories very often are people who are anxious, uh, if not about their actual like material concerns, about the future for them uh, and those concerns, you know, 15, 20 years down the road. Uh, one of the things that you see among ex-members of QAnon is that they were attracted to the movement initially because of skepticism over how the country was moving post 2008. A lot of people who have been a part of the movement have spoken directly to economic concerns. So within Jeremiah Films specifically, you can see um, social concerns uh, attached to maybe economic anxiety or something else happening outside of that. Um, and this becomes more prominent in the 90s when um, Pat Matriciana moves into explicitly social and political targets. Um, and yeah, no, I think that's about yeah. Well, it's, I know you don't deal in the realm of theology, but it seems to me in, in reading your work and, and listening to, to you answer these questions, uh, it, it seems to me that these social and cultural fears play into a theology of conservative uh, evangelical Christianity, where uh, everything's a battle, everything's black and white. Uh, yes. There, there are these interesting memes out there of Jesus arm wrestling Satan. You know, you've got these... <laughs> Manichaean powers that are, are locked into the struggle, and it kind of plays into that theology related to those fears. Um, so it's, it's kind of troubling. Did, did you get the impression when you're doing your research um, that Jeremiah Films in, in one segment of the QAnon audience was kind of laid some of the foundation that helped make QAnon possible or more credible later on? 
Well, so one of the reasons I argue that satanic panic never went away is that to understand how it evolved into what we currently have now with QAnon, you kind of have to get deep into reading about the conspiracy figures that helped extend the life of it. And I, I can't go into all of them, but um, around the time Jeremiah Films started releasing this, um, there, the idea of what is QAnon would call a satanic deep state first developed in the late 80s and early 90s through um, what's known as the Franklin Credit Union scandal in Omaha, Nebraska, where um, a figure connected to the Republican Party named Larry King um, was essentially embezzling money from the credit union. And then there were accusations of satanic sex trafficking. And uh, a book was later written on it by a figure named John DeCamp in 1992. Um, and slowly over time, people like DeCamp, uh, Kathy O'Brien in 1994 with a book called Transformation of America. Alex Jones would pop up uh, working with DeCamp, his expose on the Bohemian Grove in 2001 and then figures like Dave McGowan. Some of them were Christian, some of them were not. Um, O'Brien was definitely a Christian or she identified as one. I don't believe Dave McGowan was one, but they would develop this idea um, that would take a lot of the writing that was happening at the time or research that people were discussing. Um, a big theory by the early 90s was the New World Order, this idea of a one world government. Um, Pat Robertson wrote a book about the subject in 1991 that would get incorporated into those theories and um, other similar books would come out, either religious figures or non-religious figures. Jeremiah Films sort of picked up on that. Um, Gods of the New Age, when it ends, um, it essentially argues that what New Age religions are trying to do is condition Western society for a one world government through things like the idea of a one, one consciousness, one unified you know, belief in having trouble phrasing it here, but like the idea of like a one world consciousness. So this was stuff that was already percolating in that community and Jeremiah Films just picked up on it. Um, if you visit their website today, they've definitely taken it to the extreme. They promote content um, based around figures like William Milton Cooper, Bill Cooper, who was a conspiracy theorist and UFO figure connected to both the ufology community and the militia movement. Uh, so they sell stuff like that, um, even though Historically, they didn't write anything or put videos out about UFOs, but they'll have UFO content out there now. Um, things like, I believe one of, the, one of them is titled The Alien Agenda. Um, they'll have lots of Satanic Panic themed content, which they still push. Even after um, the Satanic Panic is supposed to have ended in the 90s, they were still publishing that kind of content. In 2001, they put out a documentary about Harry Potter, connecting Harry Potter to an alleged, you know, scheme by the government to enact uh, satanic and druidic indoctrination through literacy programs. So the satanic panic never went away. It just moved to fringe figures. It seems to me that in response to, uh, to fears and changes in culture and the changing social order, that there are certain actors who are social and moral entrepreneurs who uh, take advantage of circumstances and know how to package things so that they can have emotional appeal to a particular segment of the audience. Is that kind of your feeling for what Jeremiah Films has been able to do? Absolutely. So I mentioned Jerry Falwell earlier, and he is an important figure. Um, he definitely helped stoke the fear for the satanic panic um, in the 70s, Liberty University to combat um, their students going to haunted houses. Um, they essentially created what is known as a hell house 
which is um, a very different interpretation of the haunted house. It's essentially what happens when you go to hell. Um, I believe they still run it annually this year, but it was something that they did specifically to make sure their students were not spending money elsewhere so that they could keep that money within their community. Falwell would help stoke the flames of that panic th throughout the 80s. And then he worked with Matriciana in the 90s, um, specifically on the Clinton Chronicles. He aired it weekly or aired advertisements for it weekly on his old time gospel radio hour TV show. And um, he actively promoted it. He had a financial stake in creating it. So he was the social entrepreneur who saw an opportunity to use these claims to help him um, gain larger standing and mainstream these ideas amongst the community. Well, I know you're outside the evangelical community, so you may not be able to, to answer this, but do you have any feel for the continued influence of Jeremiah Films? Do you, do you run across any of their influence any more than, you know, the, their heyday in the 70s, 80s, and so on? So I don't know if they were, they're actively as influential as they are within the evangelical community. If you do like archival work and look through what they were doing at the time, um, a lot of churches would be screening their material um, after it aired for years. The Godmakers was still, you know, being screened publicly at churches. I believe it was released in 82 and you can still find records of it as far into like 93, 94. And they released a follow-up and this would screen publicly. Um, one of the reasons I would also argue that they might not have as much of an influence within that community, I think is in general, American society has slowly, like the idea of community has broken down as people have moved online. So the way their influence operates now, I don't know if it's as influential in the evangelical community, but their documentaries exist online in various forms. Um, YouTube, Dailymotion, um, any kind of, um, video sharing site, you can find everything that they've released. That's how I was able to write this article by using either private torrent tra trackers or YouTube. So now I think that their influence exists in a broader sense where they validate a lot of beliefs in like a one world government or the satanic panic, which still exists to some extent. Um, so they're more of like this organization that has been around for 20, 30 years. It's not run by Pat Matriciana anymore, but the fact they still exist and produce and release content may make them seem like a credible source. And if you look at like the YouTube comments or comments on um, media sites that they use, people still obviously believe in this stuff because the people posting in the comment sections are taking a lot of what they post at face value. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Again, as a part of my research to prepare for our conversation, since I hadn't looked at Jeremiah films for years, uh, since I was in that mindset, I, I did some, uh, I peeked into their, their page on YouTube. And uh, like you said, I was surprised and shocked to see that the continuing number of comments. I remember years ago in the eighties, they used to do uh, film screenings in churches and that was how they got yep. to do that. And that was very successful. Uh, and now they've shifted obviously to the internet, which makes sense and so on. Um, it's just kind of tragic as someone who's trying to market my own ideas as a counter <laughs> an alternative to this kind yeah. of thing. I, I just, I, I wonder how you've got the Islamophobia industry on the one hand and they just, they're able to get millions of dollars in funding and get their ideas out there. You've got Jeremiah films. It gets their bad uh, ideas and sensationalism out there. Um, it's, yeah, I wish those of us who want to, we want to uh, market an alternative fringe 
to the fringe of right. some of these other things. And I'm not quite sure how we do it. Um, did, do you ever, ever wonder as a researcher of the fringe, how it is that they're so successful? And how, how can we reverse engineer that to get better ideas out? <laughs> I don't know if you can reverse engineer that. I mean, like I said, I'm involved in what would be either positively or pejoratively called conspiracy research. Right. So in some sense, I'm not saying all conspiracy theories are wrong. It's just how you look at them and right. see how they operate. And typically conspiracies that we know of tend to be more mundane. It's small groups working to promote their personal interests. It's not necessarily you know, a cabal of satanic pedophiles kidnapping and ritually abusing children. Although non-satanic sex trafficking rings have existed historically, it's just they don't exist in the way that they're argued here. Right. So I don't know if you can reverse engineer those types of theories because they tend to arise either naturally um, in a community. Like I was saying earlier, I think at least some of it beginning in the late 70s was anxiety over changing economic and social conditions. And I think think that beyond that, you could argue that um, just the way conspiracy theories operate, it takes a lot for them to stick. So frequently, they will be part of larger information or influence campaigns by organizations. Um, one of the organi organizations I brought up previously was the Council for National Policy, which is an organization that was created in the 70s with a strictly... Um, theological political mandate, um, specifically to, in their words, restore Christ, uh, Christian life to power, because they saw America as being in decline, and they wanted to return it to its, what they perceived to be a form of glory. So they would often work with figures like Falwell, or others to enact long-term campaigns. And sometimes that might mean working or funding things that would be considered conspiracy theories. You can also look at the Clinton theory specifically that I referenced in my article, the Clinton body count theory or the Clinton kill list. Uh, that was a long-term political project from a number of conservative organizations, not necessarily only Christian conservative, right. but um, right-wing groups. So um, it was initially created, the list itself was created by someone named Linda Thompson, who she had been a lawyer in Indianapolis and then she um, Ruby Ridge was kind of like the inciting event that made her open her eyes, so to speak. So she started writing about, you know, the New World Order and things that other people like Pat Robertson had previously talked about, but from uh, not necessarily a strictly Christian perspective. And she created this list in 1993, stating that Bill Clinton was responsible for, you know, multiple murders. And then this got picked up on once Vince Foster um, committed suicide. The reason this mainstreamed was because it was a, an explicitly political project by a number of organizations. Um, Richard Mellon Chafee, who was a philanthropist and a large donor to the Republican Party from Pittsburgh, um, created what were essentially fake groups, um, one of which was the Western Journalism Center to fund the work of a writer named Christopher Ruddy, who had been writing for the New York Post on this subject. Um, the funding Ruddy got from Chafee allowed him to continue writing about this. Um, there was um, the American Spectator, another conservative magazine, which received money, uh, money from Chafee for something known as the Arkansas Project, which again um, brought up Vince Foster theories frequently. So the Clinton conspiracy theory was able to stay in the news over time because of a long-term political agenda from actors who were well-funded. 
Um, so it wasn't strictly Christian there. And I don't, I'm not saying Christians are all conspiratorial. I'm just stating there are specific groups that are working to advance their own agendas. And that's generally how politics works. But if you want to look at it from a specific frame of reference, it could be seen as a conspiracy. Yeah. Well, if anybody watching or listening has got any great ideas on how we can, if we can't reverse engineer, how can we better market to get good <laughs> ideas and sound thinking out there to counter some of the, the stuff that's driving uh, religious groups and politics today? I'm, I'm all ears. You can reach out to me privately. <laughs> money, money would probably be one of them because yeah. that seems to be how these ideas continue to stay there. I mean, that's how the Clinton theory stayed there. So it's not the only one, but it's a start. Yeah. Money, money's a big help. That's for sure. So... <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a huge Absolutely. fan. I appreciate, uh, I was just ecstatic. I get the, the email from Diabolique with all the, the latest articles and I was scrolling through when something catches my eye, I click on it and read. And uh, when I saw the satanic panics and all this, and I clicked <laughs> and I thought, man, that is, a, that is a great way to connect the dots. I had not thought about that. So I really appreciate it. I will include in the program notes, a link to your article and uh, with your name, uh, uh, is there a preference as to which uh, uh, source I should link to for your bio and, and where folks can primarily access your work? Uh, so, I mean, I, I'm a freelance writer uh, and uh, associate editor, I think is the official title at Diabolique. So a lot of my writing will show up at Diabolique. Um, so you can always find it there, but I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Robert Scabarla, my name. So that's usually a place where you can find uh, whatever I'm working on. I just released an article on the new Conjuring film looking at um, how the many different versions of that story. So I'm approaching religious ideas frequently in my writing, even, even if I myself am not a religious person. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. I did see your piece uh, on The Conjuring as someone who's done some research and writing in <laughs> Lorraine Warren. Uh, yes. I, I found that very interesting as well. So I would encourage folks who have an interest in uh, how religion services in pop culture and conspiracy theories and fringe phenomenon. I think you're doing some some fantastic work. So, thank I you. What you're doing, and I thank you for carving out time for this podcast and talk about it for the audience. No, thank you for having me on. Um, definitely read my work, and please read Diabolique. There's a lot of great writers there. There he is, and I'll include again links in those in the podcast. I appreciate Robert coming on. Again, this is the podcast for Multi Faith Matters. I'm your host, John Moorhead, and I thank everyone for watching and listening. Until the next episode. <laughs>